Providence intervened, and we are in Exodus 23 once again. Lord willing, finishing up the Book of the Covenant tonight. Exodus 23, starting at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take away sickness from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. (coughs) Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand your word. Free us from distraction, Free us from tiredness. Rev up our minds to understand and then our hands to do. Transform our wills. Transform ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the mighty angel in the covenant, our traveling companion, the one who guards us on the way. And we ask that you would help us to guard ourselves before him. Thank you that he is here Help us to listen to his words, which are your words. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Book of the Covenant takes a major shift here in this final section. Uh, The previous parts have pretty much been laws. Do this, don't do that. Here's how to be. This passage is a little more narrative, describing the journey to the land. Behold, I send an angel before you. The land is a gift. So the themes of justice and piety recede a bit in this section, but they don't recede all the way. God still majors on the theme of piety. Walk before the angel. Walk in the fear of God, and that's how you come to the promised land. Walking with God and following Jesus to the place he's prepared brings enormous blessings, but it also demands enormous 
obedience. The text is about walking with God, following Jesus to the place he's prepared. That brings blessings. It demands obedience. So we start in verse 20, the second half of the verse, to bring you to the place which I have prepared. The destination in walking with God is not wherever your feet happen to wander. God doesn't say, I'm sending my angel with you and he'll just accompany you on your authentically broken journey. No, the angel will take you to one place and only one place. That is the place that God has prepared. Now, what place is that? Well, we can think most closely in the context of Exodus 15, the song of the sea, and the statement that you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Surely that is a reference to the place God has prepared. If we look a little further back in the Pentateuch, we see that the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden and then took the man and put him into that garden. So we have two different places that God has formed, the earthly paradise, Eden, and the heavenly paradise, the place not made with hands, the temple eternal in the heavens. And of course, in John 14, Jesus repeats God's description of the angel here and applies it to himself. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself. So the angel of the covenant who takes you to the place which is prepared, Jesus picks up on that and essentially says, I am the angel of the covenant. I am the one bringing you to the place that I've prepared. The pedagogue who leads us to the father's house is the father's son and heir. So the destination ultimately is heaven. Now you can think of Zion as the place that God has prepared in an earthly sense as a symbol of that trip to heaven. And that's where the people are headed on their journey through the wilderness. They're going obviously to the promised land. But God speaks of it deliberately in a vague way. He doesn't say, I'm sending an angel to bring you to Canaan. Well, he mentions the Amorites and the Hittites and so on in verse 23. But ultimately, the point of the angel is to bring God's people to the place God has prepared. Also, notice that God says he will send the angel, just as Christ repeatedly speaks of the Father sending him into the world. Not a coincidence. So that's the destination. The destination is heaven, ultimately, the place God has prepared. And the company on the trip is the angel of the Lord. I am sending this angel before you. Who is the angel of the Lord? The word angel can just mean messenger, someone who God sends to carry a message, something like a prophet. Clearly, this angel is more than that for two reasons. First, the first reason is that God says, my name is in him. Now, if I start a company, call it Nelson Micro Widgets, and hire a spokesman, I could say my name is on that spokesman, right? He might wear a company branded shirt that says Nelson Micro Widgets. My name would be on him in an external way. He would represent Nelson in a certain sense. God doesn't say my name is on the angel in an external fashion. 
The angel isn't wearing God's logo. God says, my name is in the angel in an internal fashion. By nature, this angel carries the name of God. In other words, this angel is himself God. He doesn't just represent Yahweh, he is Yahweh. Not the same person, as the New Testament will make clear, but the same substance, the same divine being. So, that's the first reason. The second reason is that the angel speaks the word of God. Uh, Notice verse 22, if you obey his voice and do all that I speak. Not if you obey his voice and do all that he speaks, or if you obey my voice and do all that I speak, but obey his voice and do all that I speak. God seems to say his voice and what I speak are the same thing. When the angel talks, I'm talking. And when you obey the angel, you are obeying me. So obey his voice, do what I say. He has the name of God. He speaks with the voice of God. Right? He walks like a duck, quacks like... No, he talks like God. He has the name of God. He is God. He is also, though, one who identifies with Israel. So he stands on God's side. He is identified with God. He bears the name of God. But he stands on Israel's side. I send an angel to guard you in the way. Verse 20. The angel is with Israel and he is protecting them. Right? If the angel is guarding Israel, the angel identifies with Israel at some level. He is on their side. If you're somebody's bodyguard, you identify with that person's cause. So the angel guards Israel. The angel also fights enemies, fights Israel's enemies as his own. I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That's a huge blank check. Israel, anyone whose enmity you incur, I will fight them. God is portraying for us the mediator. One who is God and stands on God's side. One who also identifies with Israel, guards Israel, fights on Israel's side in Israel's battles. This is pretty amazing. The angel of the Lord stands with the Lord, but he also stands with Israel. Furthermore, the angel will bring Israel into the land. My angel will go before you, verse 23, and bring you in. God sends the angel as the agent, and then he says, and I will cut them off. The angel is rather similar to the angel of death from chapter 12, who went through the streets of Egypt and killed the firstborn. Again, it is through this angel that God's promises to his people are fulfilled. Where have we heard that? Oh yes, 2 Corinthians 1. All God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. So the angel of the Lord is Jesus, is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Now there's two other descriptions of the angel. They're fascinating here. Verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you. Verse 27, 
I send my fear before you. Right? Same grammatical pattern. And then verse 28, I send the hornet before you. It's almost as though God encourages us to identify the angel with the fear and with the hornet. The fear of verse 27 is a fear that causes confusion among all the people to whom Israel comes. They're so terrified, they can't think straight. All they can do is turn around and run. Thus, the ten spies come back later in the book of Numbers and say, we're like grasshoppers to them. They are far more powerful than us. God has already addressed that problem and said, they'll be scared silly by you. And that promise was certainly kept in the book of Joshua. This angel brings terror. And it is the kind of terror that makes people lose their minds and just run away. They're unable to control themselves in the face of this angel. This is the cherub with a flaming sword, as it were. As it were. The angel is also like a hornet who drives out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite. T.S. Eliot says in one of his poems, In the beginning of the year springs Christ the tiger. Us he devours. Right? Eliot compares Christ to the tiger, but even Eliot doesn't dare to compare Christ to the hornet. But God does. And says, this is who Jesus is. The one who strikes his enemies with madness and terror. As unreasonably afraid of hornets as most of us are, imagine a God-powered hornet. That's what Moses says. You will be brought in to the promised land by this angel of the Lord. But at the same time, the terror of the angel, his hornet-like capabilities, are not just to scare Canaanites with. God's first word about the angel is, watch yourself. Verse 21, beware of him, says the New King James, for some reason. The word is the same in Hebrew in verse 20 and verse 21. It's the basic word, guard. I send an angel to guard you in the way. And then verse 21, guard yourselves and obey his voice. Guard yourselves from him. New King James translates it as keep you in verse 20 and beware of him in verse 21. You wouldn't know it's the same word, but it is. The angel guards you, so you need to guard yourself. Told you before, right of this example, you're walking through the booby trap cave with Harrison Ford and you reach out to grab something that almost gets you all killed and he turns around and shoves his torch in your face and says, watch yourself. That is what you should envision here when Moses says, when God says, watch yourself. This angel is not someone to mess with. This angel is terrifying. This angel is like a hornet that drives people away. This angel guards you and protects you from enemies, but you must be on guard before him. Now we tend to think, oh, that's Old Testament stuff, right? Proverbs 3, above all, guarding, watch your heart, out of it are the issues of life. The New Testament contains the same theme. Mark 13, Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, 
Be on the alert. Or 1 Thessalonians 5. Then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We lock our houses. We remove our keys from our cars. But do we leave temptations strewn around our lives? As though the danger of getting our car stolen were much greater than the threat of losing our chastity, losing our integrity, or losing our walk with Christ. Watch yourself. Guard yourself. Sin is lying at the door. The presence of the angel of the Lord is not an excuse to sin. Oh, Jesus is there. He'll forgive me, so I might as well sin. God says it's the opposite. The presence of Christ with us means that we should shun sin. We should guard ourselves against our temptations. So watch yourself and obey him. Beware of him and obey his voice. Rule number one, obey all rules. God has given lots of rules in the previous four chapters, from the Ten Commandments to all the precepts in the beginning part of this chapter. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. Take no bribe. You shall not oppress a stranger. And on and on and on. Obey the voice of the angel who says these things. God says it in verse 21, and then he says it again in verse 22. If you truly obey his voice and do all that I speak. It's basically in there three times. Obey him. Do what he says. Do all that I say. That is what the angel's presence demands from you. Travel with Christ means doing things his way. And don't plan on getting forgiveness. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgressions. Now this sentence, I think, brings us up short. It certainly brought me up short to say, wait, Jesus has been forgiving my sins for decades. So how can this be him? Who is it that does not forgive sins? And the answer is that this is not a general statement about the character of Christ, that he never forgives sins. This is a historically particular statement statement relevant to that generation the wilderness generation whose bodies fell in the wilderness christ really didn't forgive their sins their carcasses fell only two of them were counted worthy to enter the promised land i was reading about the assault on tarawa in the pacific in november 1943 in this assault 992 marines died but There were 2,602 Japanese sailors on the island. 2,602. Of those 2,602, only 17 were captured. The rest were killed. Actually, that's very similar to what was seen across the Pacific. The vast majority of Japanese guys chose to die fighting. Now we hear about loss rates like that, and we say 17 left out of 2,602. That is what? 65 hundredths of a percent survived. But the wilderness generation who are told here, he will not forgive your sins, out of them, only two survived. Two out of 1.2 million. 
a loss rate of not just 99.35%, but of 99.99%. God wiped them out. The angel did not forgive their sins. Now we can say, well, I know Christ is a forgiving God, and he is. But that he is not a universalist, and he doesn't just automatically forgive everybody and anybody. Learn from this wilderness generation. Watch yourself. Guard yourself, because sin destroyed this generation who heard these instructions. Sin can destroy you and me. Make no covenant with the natives as well. It's the final instructions in verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not dwell in your land. A covenant is a bond in blood. Don't make a bond in blood with non-believers. Whether it's an individual, on an individual level, or on an institutional level, or a national level. Don't... You can imagine how weird it would be if a church, institutionally, entered into a bond in blood with a mosque or a Hindu temple or a synagogue. And we would say, what is this? This makes no sense. And that is exactly what Moses is saying here. Make no covenant with them. No covenant with their gods. Don't enter a bond in blood with the pagans. But there are also many promises here. Half a dozen promises to those who walk with God, who watch themselves in the presence of Yahweh's angel. The first of those promises is that God will destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. Promise for that time and place. I will destroy the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites. I will cut them off. God will give his people this land. Land occupied by hostile people isn't much use. But this is a good place to live because God will wipe out those who formerly lived there. Now he'll drive them out in his own time, not just in one year, little by little, until you have increased and you inherit the land. God will bless Israel's food and water, giving them bread, and I will bless your bread and your water. The very thing we often ask God to do When we pray before meals, bless this food. Well, he says he'll do it. He'll remove sickness. Uh, No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Fertility, fullness of life, health. These are all blessings that come from walking with the angel of the Lord. So if you want the blessings... Walk with Christ. Even if you don't want the blessings, you should want the blessings. Obey his voice. Walk with him and he will bring you to the place he has gone to prepare. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the glory of your angel. Help us also to see the terror that he brings. That he is like the hornet. Like the tiger. Father, we pray that we would walk in the fear of God and that we would walk with the angel of the Lord. Help us to be like him. Not to plan and just say, 
God will forgive me, that's his job. Give us the fear of God that hates sin and that takes every measure necessary to free ourselves from our sin. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.